0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, very warm welcome to this uh, LSE European Institute uh, public lecture, which is being held with the support of the uh, of the school's annual fund and the Jean Monnet programme. Uh, and a particularly warm welcome to the many LSE European Institute alumni uh, who are here this evening, following their reception. Um, but of course, the warmest welcome of all this evening is for Professor Norman Davis, who's. Uh, latest book, Vanished Kingdoms, um, I'm sure attracted your attention um, uh, as you arrived uh, at the old theatre. Um, for your information, um, we'll be discussing all the, all the 101 ways in which this book is utterly compelling, and then if you want to take that to its logical conclusion, buy a copy. Uh, that opportunity will be available uh, to you um, at the end of the, of the lecture. Uh, the books are uh, on display outside there, so should you wish to buy a copy, um, you can pick up a copy outside. Uh, and Norman Davis, at the end of the lecture, will be signing copies uh, of the books up on the stage. So you would then, if you wish to have his signature, to come back inside, um, and um, he would be very pleased um, to sign them. Anyway, so Vanished Kingdom um, uh, really is, provides the, the springboard, if you like, for our, uh, for, um, our event this evening, for Norman Davis' uh, talk. Um, I think probably very few people in this theatre will not be familiar uh, with at least some of his uh, writings. Uh, in fact, Norman, some of our master's students in the European Institute even have your uh, magnificent tome on Europe as compulsory reading, uh, though I'm happy to say... To, as far as I can see, compulsion does not seem to be uh, needed, but it is actually a set text. Um, Norman Davis's books enjoy extraordinarily wide uh, readerships without ever succumbing to uh, dumbing down. And uh, they're crammed full of facts and learning, as, uh, as you will know, and yet at the same time, and as one, um, one reviewer pointed out, in the last couple of weeks, this is also, in a sense populist history, populist in the very in the best sense of populist, obviously populist history par excellence. it is uh, attractive, made deliberately attractive, and accessible to as wide as possible an audience. so, as you see, uh, i 'm not going to spare our guests uh, blushes uh, this evening. Um, there is um, something uh, everybody seems to alight on this particularly compelling um, quality of his writing, which combines impeccable scholarship and, uh, and, and breadth of vision with a, with a real sort of novelist's eye, almost, for the telling detail. The raconteur's gift for the quirky anecdote, uh, beguiling glimpses of popular culture, including in things like poetry uh, and song, the fascinating bit of information that you would simply never have guessed at, and to my shame, uh, I had never realised that the Grand Duchy of Lithuania uh, lasted 500 years and at its peak uh, was greater in extent than either the Holy Roman Empire uh, or France. Or, um, indeed, I knew nothing about Carpatho-Ukraine, which had a lifespan of just about a day in 1939. So this this really is rich, uh, textured multi-layered history in which culture, identity, and context are not merely backdrops of the main action, but are actually defiantly centre stage. Norman Davis is Emeritus Professor of History in the University of London. He's also a professor at the Aguilonian University in Krakow and Honorary Fellow of St Anthony's College, uh, Oxford. He's a life member also of Clare Hall and Peterhouse Colleges at Cambridge. Um, he was actually a student of AJP Taylor um, at Oxford um, where he's also now, I should have mentioned supernumerary fellow of Wolfson College he's a fellow of the British Academy and the Royal Historical Society um, and his uh, several definitive accounts of Polish history have been recognised with a, a, a raft of honorary doc- doctorates, I won't name them all here, but uh, and also honorary citizenship of um, of uh, Warsaw, of Rotswaw, um Lublin, Krakow, and he has also been decorated with the Grand Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland. Amongst his other books, I'd mention, um, again, the book I've already mentioned, that magnificent doorstopper of a book, uh, Europe, A History, which came out in the mid-90s and which weighs in at uh, at, um, at 1,365 pages and some one and a half kilos. Um, And as as well as offering a a real embarrassment of riches, uh, it reminds us that the history of Europe uh, is much more than the history of Western Europe. Uh, and I would also mention perhaps the Isles, the history of Britain, uh, which uh, like Europe, another succeed esteem, but more than that, in that uh, it was an important, uh, if you like, message, that doesn't sound too didactic, coming out of it, which namely that British identity is built on rather more shifting and treacherous dans- sands than Eurosceptics and English nationalists fondly believe. But, of course, this evening we're here to discuss Vanished Kingdoms, and, which has just been published to pretty much unanimous acclaim uh, of, of the, the critics. Uh, and this is, um, this is Europe, uh, this is history with all of Europe, again, as its canvas. Uh, it's, I think, uh, an absolutely captivating excursion uh, around such former superpowers as Burgundia, uh, which actually stretch from the Italian border to the Netherlands at its height, um, Aragon, Byzantium and Etruria, well-known names, um, USSR, gone in the twinkling of an eye, and also such obscure entities as Cernagora, Rosenau, and Rusin, and uh, also quite a substantial chapter on the Dark Age kingdom of, uh, known as alt Clude, which was centered on the River Clyde. Ever heard of any of these? Well, <laughs> neither had, had, had I. Um, In all, Norman Davis considers some 15 kingdoms that rose, peaked, and fell the way of all flesh uh, to pursue the organic metaphor. And even though they're all now extinguished, uh, they too um, have left footprints in the sand, as he puts it. Well, we've got just under uh, an hour and a half to retrace some of those footprints and also maybe to pursue uh, any uh, present-day analogies of decline and fall in, in the event that any should spring to mind. Um, uh, he will speak for 30, 35 minutes or so, Norman, if that's all uh, right. Um, he will, I will then put a few um, questions to him and we will open it up to the floor and end um, shortly before 8 o'clock. So without further ado, Norman, you are extremely welcome and please come and share your thoughts with us.
1: Thank you for those very kind words, Morris. Nice to be back at LSE. I first time, I think it was 1969, uh, when I came here, so I've been coming almost every year since. Um, I suspect I'm at a slight advantage this evening. Uh, I wrote this book, and most of you haven't read it. <laughs> In fact, uh, Many of you have no intention of reading it (laughs) yet. (laughs) Um, So the standard speech which I uh, have in my pocket um, for the use at various book festivals I've been touring recently I I think is not appropriate. I'll do something a bit different. Um, I shall uh, read... A paragraph or two of the introduction. I'll make some general remarks. I'll p- pick out one of the 15 chapters and summarise one of the many stories in the book. Uh, and then I'll um, make a number of um, comments about general implications which have largely struck me since the book was, was published. This is only half the weight of uh, Europe, so it's, it's bearable uh, to hold in, in my hand. Here we go. This is, this is the, uh, the introduction. All my life, I have been intrigued by the gap between appearances and reality. Things are never quite as they seem. I was born a subject of the British Empire, and as a child I read in my children's encyclopedia that our empire was one on which the sun never set. I saw that there was more red on the map than any other colour and was suitably delighted. Before long, I was watching in disbelief as the imperial sunset blazed across the post-war skies amid seas of blood and mayhem. Reality, as later revealed, belied outward appearances of unlimited power and permanence. As a boy, I was taken on several occasions to Welsh-speaking Wales. Being endowed with a very Welsh name, I immediately felt at home and gained a lasting affinity with the country. On visiting friends in a hill village near Bethesda, also Davieses, I met with people who did not normally speak English, and was given a present of my first English-Welsh dictionary. It made me a lifelong collector of languages though not alas a master of Welsh seeing the English castles at Conwy, Harlech and Beaumaris, usually and wrongly called Welsh castles I sympathised more with the conquered than with the conquerors and on reading somewhere that the Welsh name for England Leoghe meant the lost land I fell for the fancy imagining what a huge sense of loss and forgetting the name expresses. A learned colleague has since told me that my imagination had outrun the etymology. Yet as someone brought up in English surroundings, I never ceased to be amazed that everywhere that we now call England was once not English at all. This amazement underlies much of what is written in Vanished Kingdoms. Dover, after all, or the Avon, are pure Welsh names. As a school leaver, I followed the advice of my history master to spend the summer vacation reading Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, together with with his wonderful autobiography. Gibbon's subject was in his own words, the greatest perhaps and most awful scene in the history of mankind. I've never read anything to surpass it. Its magnificent narrative demonstrates that the lifespan, even of the mightiest states, is finite. Not surprisingly, therefore, when I came to write the history of the Isles, not incidentally the history of Britain, but the history of Britain and Ireland. (laughs) Um, I began to wonder if the days the state in which I was born and live, the United Kingdom, might also be numbered. I decided that they were. I've always loved Plato's metaphor of the ship of state. The idea of a great vessel with its helmsman crew and complement of passengers ploughing its way across the oceans of time is irresistible. So too are the many poems which celebrate it. Thou too say long O ship of state. Say long O union strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. These lines from Longfellow were written out by President Roosevelt in his own hand and sent to Winston Churchill on the 20th of January 1941. They were accompanied by a note which said, I think this verse applies to your people as it does to us. The same thoughts come to mind when brains are racked about kingdoms that have vanished. For ships of state do not sail on forever. They sometimes ride the storms and sometimes sometimes founder. On occasion, they limp into port to be refitted. On other occasions, Damaged beyond repair, they are broken up, or they sink, slipping beneath the surface to a hidden resting place among the barnacles and the fishes. In this connection, another string of images presents itself, in which the historian becomes a beachcomber and treasure seeker, a collector of flotsam and jetsam, a raiser of wrecks, a diver of the deep scouring the seabed to recover what was lost. This book certainly sits comfortably in the category of historical salvage. It garners the traces of ships of state that sank, and it invites the reader, if only on the page, to watch with delight as the stricken galleons straighten their fallen masts, draw up their anchors, fill their sails, and reset their course across the ocean swell. Vanished kingdoms recount the history of Europe's extinct states. Not all of them, but enough to make the point that the conventional panorama of the of the European past suffers from numerous deficiencies. The book is a collection of 15 case studies drawn from all ends of Europe including Britain and from, the periods of the, from all periods of the post-Roman era. It contains some pretty obscure items like the five, six or seven kingdoms of Burgundy uh, or the Kingdom of the Rock whose real and original name we don't actually know but within which the great city of Glasgow was founded. It contains chapters on states that were very, very powerful, very extensive in their day, like the Crown of Aragon or the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and others, such as the Kingdom of Etruria or the, the Duchy of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, that never enjoyed any great significance. It gives examples of states that lived for centuries or even millennia, millennia And of others, like the Visigothic Kingdom of Tolosa, or the Aragonese Kingdom of Majorca, that can only be described as ephemeral, I even found a republic that lasted for just one day. The basic theme is that of the transience transience of all human institutions, And here I make a nod of recognition in my introduction to the ancient Greek philosopher, uh, Heraclitus or Heraclitus, who first laid down the law of transience, but also to Queen Victoria, Empress of India, who to a very great credit asked at her jubilee in 1897 for the singing of the hymn St. Clement. The key line of the hymn, if I may remind you, states so be it Lord thy throne shall never like earth's proud empires pass away it's a wonderful moment the vanity of earth's proud empires was on Queen Victoria's mind as it has been on mine the the Romans observed it seek transit gloria mundi and it's to do true today as it ever was. The common denominator of these studies is that all the kingdoms are extinct, all dead or gone, or totally transformed. In my concluding remarks I likened them to Monty Python's dead parrot, which was stiff, a goner, perished, an ex-parrot, gone to see his maker, gone to join the bleeding choir celestial apart from obvious examples the Roman Empire the Republic of Venice or the Austro-Hungarian Empire they include some that are less obvious the Kingdom of England and Wales for example that became extinct in 1707 when it merged with Scotland the Soviet Union the largest state in the world, which evaporated before our very eyes in 1991, and, at least in anticipation, the United Kingdom, which began to break up in 1922 and which may or may not last longer than I do. At the same time, I've applied myself to the complicated matters of residue, memory, and afterlife. That is, to all the things, material and immaterial, tangible and intangible, which remain behind when the polity dissolves. Uh, My editor and myself wanted the subtitle to to start with the lives and afterlives of, but then we couldn't think of how to end it with without repeating a phrase equivalent to vanished kingdoms. The residue of a dead state usually embraces a corpus of languages and literature, bodies of laws and traditions, and it always involves a community of people, a community of ex-citizens whose former allegiances have been lost and who have to assume a new identity. I chose to explore this phenomenon in the third part of my chapter on the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which was destroyed in 1795 and was the ancestor of at least three contemporary states, the republics of Lithuania, Belarus and Ukraine, and it has very special cultural and historical connections with Poland. The memory game is equally complex and is very unreliable. In some cases, like the Zigothic Tolosa, the dead polity has left virtually no traces, not even archaeological ones. In other instances, as with the mighty kingdom of Prussia, the remnants are correspondingly strong, though often taking the form of hostile genera- generalizations and stereotypes with which historians can constantly do battle. And yet, if you go to Kaliningrad, Russia's most westerly city, the former Königsberg, it is only with the greatest difficulty that one can penetrate the present-day Russian appearances and get a feel for this being the place where the Prussian story began. And it began in the mists of early medieval times, with no Russians and no Germans present. Similarly, one is unlikely to see the whole picture by visiting Berlin, which nowadays is the memory site par excellence of the Hohenzollern kingdom of Prussia, but which makes no or little attempt to recall the other older Prussias. And this is where um, I'll leave my text and... um, Summarize very quickly the story of all the Prussias because it's one of the kingdoms you're likely to have heard of. Uh, However, not many history books make make clear that there were seven Prussias. Seven. Uh, And the one that we all know about the uh, Hohenzollern kingdom of prussia about which chris clark wrote is only the sixth of seven most history books start with the rise of prussia in the 17th century and yet that is just the the later history uh, of the prussians the first one the land of the ancient prussians on the baltic Um, is largely uh, a subject of prehistory the Prusai were a Baltic people uh, kin to the uh, Lithuanians and the Latvians and they no longer exist but enough was left um, to know about their language and some of their traditions the second Prussia was the Teutonic state Created by a, a military order of crusading knights, the Teutonic Knights, who forcibly uh, converted the Prussians and Germanized them. So that from the 13th century onwards, the name of Prussia began to be associated for the first time with Germans. The original Prussians were not Germans at all. Uh, The third Prussia from the um, 15th to the 18th century was uh, the western part of the Teutonic state, later called West Prussia, uh, at the time known as Royal Prussia, which was um, overrun uh, by the Poles and became a province of the Kingdom of Poland and stayed uh, as such until the end of the 18th century. This is Danzig, royal Prussia, um, a very uh, prominent part of uh, Poland in those days. The fourth Prussia, the Duchy of Prussia, came into being in 1525, uh, known in German terminology as East Prussia, were the capital of uh, Königsberg. It was created by the secularization of the Teutonic Knights. And the last Grandmaster of the Teutonic Knights, uh, Albrecht von Hohenzollern, um, uh, abandoned his Catholic religion, became a Lutheran, and became the Duke of Prussia as a Vassal of the uh, Kingdom of Poland. So you've West Prussia and East Prussia, Royal Prussia, the Duchy of Prussia. These are very closely connected with Polish history. Uh, The fifth Prussia was the joint state of Brandenburg Prussia. Uh, In the later 16th century, uh, the... Um, the relatives of uh, Albert of Hohenzollern uh, abandoned their Catholic faith as he had done and the two um, parts of the family one in Brandenburg in Berlin the other in Königsberg uh, in East Prussia uh, joined together until there was a joint um, Hohenzollern state of brandenburg Prussia, which lasted until the end of the 17th century when we come to the the Prussia that we all know, the the Iron Kingdom uh, centered on Berlin but of course including uh, East Prussia and in the 19th century expanding right across Germany uh, to the Rhine so that Cologne was in, in Prussia and this Prussia became uh, the dominant force in Germany the King of Prussia became in 1871 the German Emperor that came to an end in 1918 the Kaiser abdicates uh, the Kingdom of Prussia and the German Empire are abolished Um, But not everybody remembers that Prussia continued as a province of the Weimar Republic and then of the Third Reich. Uh, It was uh, an autonomous province within the German state. It it had its own government. Uh, I think Hermann Göring was uh, prime minister of Prussia in the 1930s Uh, And this continued until the end of the Second World War. And the end of the Prussian story, which had started a thousand years before with the Baltic Prussians, formally came to an end in 1947 when the Allied Control Council decreed as the King of Prussia once tried to do with Poland, decreed that Prussia has ceased to exist. And that's a thousand years in about five minutes for you. Uh, But that is one one of the the stories uh, that I tell. In my contract with, uh, with Penguin Books, Vanished Kingdoms is described as a work of historical salvage. And that's um, why I use the, the, that age-old metaphor of the ship of state. It's all very poetic and evocative, and I don't withdraw a word of it. But the further query would be, what purpose other than telling fascinating stories, does this salvage work serve? The short answer would be, it resets our overall vision of the past. When it comes to our mental maps of European history, most educated people will know something of some part of our continent in some periods. They will show a glimmer of familiarity with most of the great historic powers, from the Roman Empire to Napoleonic France or Wilhelmine Germany, and bells of recognition will ring if modern geographic concepts such as Italy or Spain are linked with fam- familiar adjectives of time. Yet the Kingdom of the Rock that I mentioned, or the Kingdom of Majorca, or the Napoleonic Kingdom of Etruria, will probably be conspicuous by not ringing any bells. They are beyond the horizon, even of many uh, professionals. So all these vanished kingdoms serve to remind us how incomplete our knowledge is and how our assumptions need to be constantly questioned and revised. Historians who draw our attention exclusively to the great powers or to the past of present-day countries are, in an important sense, doing us a disservice. As a lifelong uh, educator, I'm acutely aware of the fact that children and students can't be taught everything and that all approaches to historical education are of necessity rigidly selective. It is perhaps inevitable that what we call mainstream history rules the roost. Also, that the existence of a mainstream presupposes a long list of side, streams, side stream subjects that never find their way into the curricula, the textbooks, or into public consciousness. Uh, In my introduction I touch on the question of how and why the mainstream is formed. I mentioned three mechanisms, the addiction to power politics, the natural inclination for tracing the roots of present-day concerns, and the self-perpetuating nature of many historical debates and interests. I've no doubt that other factors can be found but the net result is very clear. The prevailing images of the past are partial, incomplete, deformed, and frequently politically driven. Vanished kingdoms and books like it may help in some small way uh, to redress the balance. Much could be said about today's mainstream history or the historical canon, as some people call it, in this country. So I shall confine confine myself uh, simply to mention one prominent topic of the mainstream and also one absentee topic. The prominent one is what I've elsewhere called the Allied version of history, a moral tale that derives from our own experiences during the Second World War. The tale presents the war as a simple conflict between good and evil. It only acknowledges the crimes of our enemies and it greatly exaggerates the role of the Western allies in achieving this uh, victory. In my view, it plays no small part in the delusions of grandeur that still afflict many aspects of our self-image all too often we, meaning the British or the Americans, are apt to boast that we won the war our enemy the Third Reich is invariably seen as the sole source of evil its leader Adolf Hitler is presented as a figure so diabolical as to be devoid of all humanity and the crimes of the Third Reich notably the Holocaust, are thought to be so uniquely abominable that normal historical methods of contrast and comparison are cast aside. The trouble with this mindset, of course, is that it ignores the largest of the combatant powers in Europe of the Second World War, Stalin's Soviet Union, which started in 1939 as Hitler's partner before becoming his principal adversary. One of the topics that is absent from our mainstream history is rather curious I think, but very telling. It's the history of the United Kingdom. When I was a student in Oxford um, longer ago than I care to remember. No pretense was made of studying British history. Everything in these isles was called English history. And in our compulsory course of constitutional documents, the Acts of Union of 1707 and 1801, which created the state in which we now live, were not even listed for study we innocent students were being systematically prepared for the reigning misconception still prevalent, at least among the English, that we live in a sovereign state called England. So I couldn't help noticing that when my colleague Simon Sharma was recently asked to name half a dozen facts that every school child should know, he did not mention the acts of union. Plus ça change. And touring the book festivals, I've been very struck that there is now a wave of um, publishing books about the history of England. Uh, go to the Cheltenham Festival, dozens and dozens and dozens of title titles. Numerous histories of England by all, you know, Simon Jenkins, John Julius Norwich, Peter Acker, you name them, there isn't a single history of the United Kingdom. It's almost as though the English are revving up their nostalgia for the catastrophe that's about to, to strike them. <laughs> um, I think it's an appalling fact um, that the English football team cannot find an English anthem to sing at their matches and that their supporters cannot understand the deep offence when they sing God Save the Queen off-key in Cardiff, Edinburgh or Belfast. And because England is the country to which the English are now directing their patriotism increasingly They're oblivious to the reality that they are undermining the Union. This is one of many clues that lead me to believe that the United Kingdom itself may soon join the list of Europe's vanished kingdoms. Finally, a few words about the frequently unnoticed fragility of our own world, although watching the news in the last few days, uh, I think it's increasingly noticed. We in our generation have lived through six or seven decades of peace and of unprecedented rising prosperity. We've been lulled into a mindset of false security, low vigilance and complacence about the lurking dangers. We've been conned into believing that economic growth can be infinite, that Himalayas of debt have no consequences and that catastrophes only occur elsewhere. After the end of the Cold War, an American historian was deluded into sawing the impression, if not uh, uh, explicitly, that we had reached the end of history. Alas, history is still with us, as are all the basic immemorial elements of the human condition. At the level of states and nations and political communities, No one can expect that our institutions will be immortal. And if they are left to drift, untended, in a fog of self-satisfaction, the end will come sooner rather than later. So yes, disasters, catastrophes and sudden shifts of fortune do occur and people are rarely well conditioned to cope. And yes, kingdoms do regularly vanish. The tempo and the rhythms of their demise differ from those of human life and death, but are nonetheless easily discerned. Bodies politic, uh, as Rousseau said, continue to dissolve for a variety of reasons and then to be replaced. In the last two decades alone, Europe has lost four sovereign states, The most important thing, I think, is to accept that the law of transience, as I don't suppose Heraclitus called it, applies to each and all of us and to all of our countries. I don't find these assertions particularly sad or melancholy, but my wife has warned me that I should not risk leaving you in a state of shock and gloom, as I did with my audience at the Cheltenham Festival. Here, fortunately, I can be rescued by the very first interview that I gave about the book uh, with my fellow Boltonian, Brian Appleyard. Brian liked the book, uh, filled our conversation with penetrating insights, then paid me the nicest of compliments. Um, So this is to cheer you up. (laughs) Norman Davies comes from my own hometown, Bolton, and went to my school, so the flat tone, oblique comedy and resigned observation of human folly were shockingly familiar. (laughs) I'm slightly taken aback by his floral denim shirt, but otherwise I'm back in the classroom being taught Latin or geography while angry bits of chalk whistle past my ears. The fall of the Soviet Union inspired him to write Vanished Kingdoms which at 848 pages comes in as a rather pithy Davis. (laughs) It's a fantastic read, a series of case studies of kingdoms that rose, peaked and fell Each starts with the present, goes back to the past and returns to the present Each is peppered with poetry and songs adding to the poignancy of it all It's sad, I tell him, but it induces a kind of serenity. Norman seizes on the word serenity. No one has ever said that about my work. That is how I would like the tone of the book to be remembered. It's autumn, and the leaves at his Oxford College, St Anthony's, are ready to fall. It's a sad thing, autumn, but it happens every year and like leaves, kingdoms and civilizations are destined to fall. What counts for the wise man is finding the right word for the feeling of gentle acceptance. I'm very chuffed, Norman says, as I turn off the recorders, by that word serenity. And I am chuffed, wrote Appleyard, that I gave it to him. <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Well, um, Norman, thank you for um, some wonderfully provocative, elegiac, uh, you struck a a whole number of different notes, um, mostly cautionary, some a little bit sad. Um, I mean, what what encouragement, uh, if any, if we take your analysis, if we adjust our expectations downwards, if we start teaching history better in our schools, I mean, can we... Um, you know, can we yet still salvage something from uh, uh, this inexorable cycle of uh, rise and decline? Or are we are we just? I'm thinking particularly of the West. I'm thinking particularly of Europe here. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are there any um, are there any steps we can take? Are there any? Uh, you know, h- how do we avoid this uh, the worst case scenario?
1: Well, I don't see the uh, the death of states um, as uh, the worst case scenario. There are much worse things and. And the dissolution of, of states and institutions. Um, uh, I'm suggesting there's a sort of nat- natural cycle in all of this, and this, hence the uh, the air of serenity that that, that Brian Apple yeah, noticed. Um, I think the main main thing, uh, of, apart from having a, a passionate interest in in all of it, is. Um, uh, accepting the, the realities of human nature and the human condition um, um, the uh, appropriate attitude is one of stoicism not, not of um, despair uh, that uh, catastrophes will happen that crises will, will come but that um, people overcome these crises uh, those uh, there are fortunate, unfortunate people and so on, but uh, being critically involved in everything is is uh, what I think every educated person should be, and that's, that's the purpose
0: of education. I mean, is, is it Do you also find comfort in um, man's apparent uh, ingenuity in erecting new institutions and achieving some sort of social cohesion quickly in the wake of the collapse of a state? We don't seem to uh, I mean the fear, the ultimate fear of course of again back into some Hobbesian state of nature but in fact <laughs> new institutions are, are created, are devised yeah. and somehow life, life goes on
1: Well uh, the book is full of, if you like of examples of human folly <laughs> but also of um, human uh, ingenuity resilience, new solutions that are formed um, there's a, a, a section Uh, at the end of the um, Kingdom of Etruria which um, Napoleonic creation which only lasted uh, six or seven years where I I talk about um, uh, Dante's and Machiavelli's um, view of what is fortune and misfortune and of course Machiavelli said that, that crises Catastrophes are an opportunity. This is where human ingenuity can show its mettle and provide a, uh, a new solution. Um, so you can look at a, a, a crisis either pessimistically as something terrible which is going to overwhelm us, or you can see that this is uh, opening up uh,
0: new vistas which can be uh, exploited. Well, those who are looking for a, a silver lining in what's happening in Europe at the moment uh, hark back, obviously, to the origin of the European Union following a spectacular crisis, a mm-hmm. catastrophe, which was the Second World War. Um, and it may just be that the crisis that we're undergoing at the moment um, will give rise to, could, uh, as Federalists would wish, a whole new leap forward in European integration, or indeed centrifugal forces, I think, should be as your skeptics would say, capitalize on and actually turn to turn to advantage. You wrote a piece uh, a few days ago in the Financial Times, which you did as sort of uh, jeu desprit imagining at mm-hmm. some point in the future um, a new um, dispensation uh, for the European union and I wonder if uh, I just wonder if we could sort of tease you out a little bit and given your theories of, sort of, of rise and decline and the cyclical view of, of, of states, would you like to hazard any thoughts as to where the European Union um, Maybe going next um,
1: well, I can guess like everybody else <laughs> um, uh, I, th- I think uh, various design flaws in the European Union are not making themselves manifest um, and most more most specifically in the eurozone, which was a if you like a an institution set up with um, without Polit- proper political governance, and the the, pol- the crisis that we have now is essentially political. It's not, it's not um, that there's no money in, uh, around in Europe to uh, um, uh, to uh, patch these uh, these holes that are appearing. It's it's that nobody knows how to um, nobody knows the rules of the game. Nobody knows how to how to deal with it. and uh, it's possible that some great statesman will ride in from outside and uh, uh, and sort it all out but it it is uh, getting bad and there doesn't seem to be any um, uh, any visible prospect of of somebody really getting a grip of the the whole situation Um, uh, a few years ago you know when the um, constitutional uh, project collapsed i I was a bit pessimistic I was, uh, it seemed obvious to me that when you 've got a new much enlarged community of twenty seven members you, you need new rules for governing um, that community and it didn't happen and everybody went on gaily and uh, produced this patched up Lisbon treaty and now we're, we're seeing the consequences of, of this failure and but I, I think that the um, the uh, European powers will make huge efforts to, to salvage the whole thing It's a, uh, a crisis in a way was necessary to, to force them to to um, uh, reform the, uh, both the Eurozone and I think the, uh, the governance of the European Union um, but it's only when they're staring into the abyss and they see that uh, collapse is really possible that they, they may get their act together but if you read the book you know, it wouldn't be the first right. the first um, um, corporation or uh, body politic to, to
0: um, to collapse, to vanish this happens Well, Assuming they do get their act together uh, or at least the members of the Eurozone do uh, and assuming that uh, this, the prediction that uh, a leap forward in terms of economic integration and political integration is on, is on the cards as you know one thing that Eurosceptics and Federalists tend to agree on uh, is that for such a leap forward to be sustainable uh, that elusive concept of a European demos will be indispensable from your readings and study of history, how um, uh, do you think that uh, that uh, concept of a demos, of a European politically aware people, will always be elusive? Can you see any possibility of such a, many would say, rather fanciful thing? Um, The creation of um,
1: a European demos with a critical mass, the whole, that the um, proportions are extremely important, that there are Um, uh, several million people who have this uh, European identity who think of themselves as the the leaders of uh, of a European people but there's too few of them for the purposes of the the European Union Um, People in this lecture hall uh, (laughs) Well you you, um, obviously if you go to um, Brussels the uh, European institutions you meet them, you go to some countries in Europe, where um, or the Netherlands, or um, it used to be so in, very much in Germany, where people would say that uh, their prime uh, identity is European rather than national. Um, but the, the creation of a uh, politically conscious people, this, this demos, uh, is a Project that either works or doesn't. Uh, One of the stories, one of the countries which is um, examined here is Belarus. Um, And uh, this is a country which um, emerged after the First World War, had a first generation of people educated in Belarusian language and culture. And Stalin shot virtually the entire elite of this nascent demos, uh, shot them. <laughs> uh, and uh, as a result, uh, to this day, Belarus does not have a viable elite, a viable uh, identity, a viable demos to um, run itself in any other way than, uh, you know, by a rather tin-pot dictator. So um, all over Europe, um, there are um, political communities that are strengthening, uh, others which are weakening, some of them not too far from here, Uh, and the European one, which is uh, in a state of... um, Uncertainty certainly um, is not in a in a viable state at the moment to uh, to move forward in a in a dynamic way.
0: Um. Can, can I tease you out? Just uh, I'd like to ask a little bit more about your your comments about history and the teaching of history mm-hmm. uh, in in schools, which is something um, which for a few years now, not least as Prince Charles's personal interest in the subject, is something which is thought to be. Uh, requiring urgent attention, <coughs> and um, uh, amongst one of, one of one of your 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 points that uh, young people, as well as being given extremely fragmentary uh, understanding of history, as you say, Nazi it tends to be Nazis and, and Stalin. Mm-hmm. Judging from what my own children study, then there's a bit on sort of the sins of empire in the 19th century. Um, some you know, some schools would do a bit on the Tudors, but uh, that sense of a narrative one of the familiar charges, the sense of historical narrative and chronology is gone um, uh, how, would you, how would you, if you were redesigning the national curriculum and on the assumption that vanished kingdoms would not necessarily find there would not be enough room sadly in the national curriculum to be able to explore uh, all your chapters, what, what would you do to actually restore the teaching of history uh, in our schools is it just about narrative, uh, and chronology or do you do I think a narrative
1: is very important. People have a, a sense of the con- continuity of events, and the sequence of, of, of events. Um, my mother, who was um, educated well, um, shortly after the First World War, uh, knew all the kings of, she called them kings and queens of England, because I used to correct her <laughs> later on. British monarchs but she she had (coughs) she knew them all off by heart you know from Egbert or something to um, King George the uh, 6th as it was then Uh, and um, she had in her head a framework of events and into which things that, anything that happened in history she could say well that was in the time of Queen Elizabeth or that was in the time of George the Fourth, or whatever um, and children simply don't have that and I think some sense of uh, chronology narrative is important but I think even more important than that is um, demonstrating to children uh, that uh, history is universal every topic has a history I think one of the jobs of a history teacher is for example to go along to the uh, uh, mathematics class and have an hour telling them about the history of mathematics, i.e. that um, there are centuries of development of that subject uh, and these students are uh, following in the steps of, um, of many mathematicians or to go to whatever the biology class or the, uh, uh, the sports class and give them an idea of the history of all the subjects so that um, the historical dimension is not just present in the history room but is
0: uh, present everywhere in the class. But I could go on a lot but there's a couple of ideas in here um, We must open things up to the floor. I've certainly put too many, too many questions um, if you Please indicate if you'd like to ask a question. usual thing, please keep it reasonably short and sweet. Say who you are and if you could wait for the uh, roving mic to come round. Uh, gentleman, yes right at the, right of the back I'm David Torrance, a freelance political journalist. Intrigued, uh, you can dissect from my accent where I, where I come from, intrigued by your remarks about the United Kingdom. I'm just wondering how you see that panning out, uh, whether it comes down to political incompetence on the part of the United Kingdom government or the political prowess of Alex Salmon and the SNP. Uh, there were recent reports that the UK government's considering uh, taking control of the referendum and holding it in 2013, which, is obviously a, a risky strategy.
1: Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I can only guess like uh, like everybody else. Um, uh, catastrophes are very often made by um, foolish mistakes. And of course, if the British try to hold a referendum about it, that's the one thing that will play right into Alex Salmon's hands. But I. I um, as things stand the SNP is not going to win a referendum uh, now but uh, I think if the European crisis coalesces with uh, Scottish politics uh, then his chances are going to increase uh, if the Eurosceptics who are nearly all English you know, this the Eurosceptic mindset is especially an English, not, not British, English nationalist mindset.
2: <coughs>
1: and uh, if the Eurosceptics start going on the rampage, for example, trying to persuade the British government to leave the European Union, that is the strongest card for uh, Scotland uh, deciding to, to, to leave the, the Union. And it looks at the moment that things might well come together in two or three years' time. Um, but that's just my guess. Um, uh, people ask me to think of a scenario where it might happen and uh, that's what I uh, I dreamt of. Um, I might be wrong. But it's possible, This this is the thing, it's possible and most English people who are 80 Odd percent of the population have just, they're dream walking. They've no
0: idea that this is a possibility. Thank you. Another question. I'd like to ask a question. Gentleman in the middle there, yes. <coughs> do, do tell us who you are. just for those who didn't hear, is there a definitive description of, of Europe? Um, and if there isn't, does that pose a problem for uh, uh, delineating the teaching of history uh, of Europe uh, in schools? Uh, no, there
1: isn't a de- uh, definitive um, uh, definitive definition, can one say? Um, yeah of Europe. In the introduction to my Europe book I I talk about three Europe, a geographical Europe, a um, uh, a community of European peoples, many of whom migrated around the world. Um, You know, is New Zealand um, Asian or is it European? Uh, Is uh, Vladivostok is that European or is it Asian? And the third one, of course, is political, i.e. the the European project uh, as being a a third view of Europe. Um, I think any teacher has to keep these three three things in mind. um, uh, But increasingly, one of the problems of for educators is that the horizons are spreading expanding all the time we 're in a, a global world, and young people need some sort of in, introduction not just to their own country to the continent Europe to which they belong but also to the world and um, it 's almost too much to uh, to bear um, and uh but I think very few efforts are being made to um, move away from this uh, modular approach of uh, teaching ch- children little bits of, of history ins- ins- instead of trying,
0: trying or aiming at some broader panorama. At what point east of the present European Union would you say categorically is really in any sensible definition not Europe? How far east would you have to go?
1: Well, I, I, I um, would be in favour of Turkey as as a it's um, uh, an eternal candidate. But I think if one goes beyond Turkey, I, I don't think Iran could be uh, the, <laughs> the well. It might be a one solution. <laughs> um, um, the the peoples of the Caucasus, you know the. Uh, especially the Christian peoples of the Caucasus, Armenians and Georgians, have a very strong uh, sense of their European uh, identity. Um, yes. The um, the other, of course, question mark is Isra- Israel. Um, I, I once went to Washington, uh, gave a lecture. Um, uh, how far can the European Union a- expand? And I had. Uh, uh, Turkey, Ukraine, and Israel was three test, test cases. But they, uh, the uh, moderator came up to me and said, "The Israeli ambassador's here, and he'll talk on on that subject." <laughs> um, but but
0: um, yes, the, I, but I, beyond that, I, I I don't think. So the president of Kyrgyzstan's speech a few years again, which he spent an hour talking about Kyrgyzstan's. European vocation. He was standing almost on the Chinese border. And you wouldn't have much time. For no, it. I think that, that That's is uh, right. wishful <laughs> thinking. <laughs> um, more questions? Yes. Um, seem to be gay. right, Right at the very back, gentlemen.
3: Thank you for your very interesting talk. Uh, my name is Yarik Krivoy, I I am a senior lecturer at the University of West London. And in addition, I uh, run a website called Belarus Digest. So your remarks about Belarus were very interesting. Mm-hmm. My question is: Why uh, those kingdoms vanished? Were these? Wh- wh- was it a result of mismanagement of their leaders, or? Was it a result of some external economic pressures or military intervention? Is there a pattern which you can see? For example, the the Soviet Union, uh, my understanding is that it collapsed because it just didn't have enough money. Oil prices went down, and so the system couldn't work. And that may be the same same fate for Russia. When oil prices go down, it will not be able to subsidize its Caucasus uh, republics. So do you have any thoughts on that? Thank you. Um, Yes,
1: I have many thoughts, but I... um, At the the end of the book, there's a little essay called um, How States Die, and uh, um, traditionally the political philosophers, you know, um, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, always said there were two causes, either internal disease or external war and of course the two sometimes combine a weakened state can then be fall victim to its neighbours um, uh, but there are, there are more that, uh, things than that obviously and I, I've got five or six categories, uh, some of them uh, merges and, and demerges. some of them um, infant mortality states that are um, come into being but without viable organs of uh, for survival. Um, I, I wouldn't agree with you that the Soviet Union um, disappeared for economic reasons. Uh, it obviously had a catastrophic economic situation but that was almost normal in the Soviet Union. Uh, um, uh, You know, there were periods when uh, millions died of of hunger uh, in the Soviet Union and it carried on regardless um, and many people thought it would have carried on regardless in that way. Um, No, I I think the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, It had a sort of political heart attack uh, because Gorbachev, in my view, didn't understand the, the state he, uh, the vehicle in which he uh, he'd been made the driver, and he, once he, uh, this was a a state built on coercion, you know, brutal, murderous uh, um, coercion right from the beginning and the the minute that Gorbachev made it clear that he was not going to use force either against the satellite states or against republics of the Union like Armenia and Azerbaijan that went to war in 1987 all the non-Russian republics decided this was the time when they would prepare their escape And the Baltic states, for example, had actually been recognized as members of the United Nations, sovereign members of the United Nations before the the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, The reason why Gorbachev got into impossible trouble in the summer of 1991 when there was this coup, it was because of the uh, plans to to reform the Union Treaty, i.e. the um, the Treaty, which held the the different republics together, and I think that was the critical thing, not not the economy, that um, there was half a dozen reasons why the Soviet Union was in dire trouble, but most of them um, uh, would not have
0: co- caused this catastrophic failure. Another question, please. Lady, yes, in black
2: why are the English so keen to downplay the role of Great Britain and the United
0: Kingdom why Why are the English so keen to downplay the role of Great Britain or or the United Kingdom Um, well one
1: reason is they've never been properly educated (laughs) we've been talking about it Um, uh, there are millions of English people who don't know the difference between (coughs) England and the United Kingdom you know there's mass phenomena like football teams which quite it, it interest me a lot of people think the English football team is our national team well it isn't it's one of four national teams there isn't a British football team which is again a serious problem of, of our identity uh, there's a, a huge row going on whether or not uh, at the Olympic Games, there can be a British football team. You know, the FA, the English Football Association, made an agreement with the Olympic Committee that England would represent the United Kingdom without bothering to tell the Welsh or the Scots (laughs) what they were doing. Can you imagine how bad it is? it's just a subject which is never discussed, I I said one of the absentee topics of um, uh, of the historical canon in England, but England is so dominant within the United Kingdom that the majority of English people behave um, ineffably as, as though what goes on in Scotland or Belfast or Cardiff doesn't really affect them But it's going to. Um, It really is.
0: Question. Another question. Gentleman at the front.
2: (coughs) Um, Do you not think there's even a a sort of partial trend towards greater stability? Um, That, you know, classically in somewhere like France, a typical citizen... Cares more that they're French and remain part of that than they did five hundred years ago, and that possibly that identity is less based on uh, sort of invading neighbouring countries and taking them off the map than was the case one hundred years ago. Is there is there some sort of change happening there? Are
1: you are you asking about France or generally?
2: Well, sort of trying to partially generalise. You know, are there bits of Europe where there are countries that will hang around? for a very long time in a way that wasn't true 500 years ago, even if the UK isn't one of them.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, um, there's an American scholar, I forget his name, who did a statistical uh, survey of the the lifespan of sovereign states, and it it worked out um, statistically to be, uh, I think, between 200 and 300 years. So it's not the same as, as were a human lifetime, but it's uh, it's something which is calculable. Um, I think the uh, at the present time, some European countries have much greater co- cohesion than others. Um, we, of course, don't live in a nation state, despite the fact that most English people think we do. <laughs> um, we live in a very unbalanced um, amalgam and this is I think one, one of our the problems of the United Kingdom is that it, it's very unequal it's parts are very unequal um, that there are uh, countries with devolved sections or Germany is a federal republic but the different parts of Germany are very equally equal um, Balance. Uh, here, it's very unbalanced, and as a result, the the smaller parts of our union feel that they are railroaded
0: by, by the, the big boy. But, but that's obviously been the case for a very long time, Norman. Uh, as somebody pointed out, I pin, um, the likelihood would still be um, that in the case of Scotland... Um, that uh, people will vote against independence. Polls are still showing that clearly. In Wales, the majority against independence is even greater, and they're even smaller. How do you how do you account for, given the the big population disparity and, if you like, and, and, and reasons for feeling sort of culturally rather marginalised, uh, why isn't there more support for independence?
1: Well, it, it's it's, um, you know, opinion polls are the last guy to that they are showing as it were the, the, the state of affairs today um, I've got a section somewhere about the nature of change nature of political change and I'm rather fond of the metaphor of the avalanche where um, you have a, a mountain side uh, which looks absolutely solid you know it's snow and ice and, it, and the sun shines on it and um, it looks wonderful all the damage is being done under the surface, when the sun shines the the melt water runs down, it uh, washes away the foundations of the the snow field Uh, and everything is ideal until one second there's a crack like a gunshot when an avalanche begins and then the whole mountainside uh, roars into the valley well I think political changes are rather like that, that that most of them that are happening are happening under the surface and the, they're not visible but they accumulate uh, and suddenly they erupt and take everybody by, uh, by surprise. Um, my l- long-term prediction was based on, uh, I wrote this big book, uh, the, I- the History of the Isles, which I was told um, very firmly in Dublin and you know, couldn't recall The History of the British Isles. Um, And I looked in the uh, penultimate chapter at the pillars of Britishness, about 20 of them. The Royal Navy, the Monarchy, the um, Protestant uh, Ascendancy... LSE. LSE. (laughs) Uh, That's right. uh, Oxford University. Uh, All all these things. uh, And surprise... uh, You could see that up until the First World War, these pillars were either very strong or getting stronger. But in the 20th century, they've all uh, become decayed. The Empire is gone completely. The the Royal Navy, which was our um, sword and shield, with more admirals than ships. we're you know, more generals than tanks. I was, uh, read it the other day. Um,
0: you, you, you expressed a certain amount of nostalgia uh, for the Britain that you yeah, lost. No, that's, that's right. Really I awesome. In my generation, I can. I, can um,
1: uh, I was alive during the Second World War, which, um, and I remember many of the positive vibrations of, of that time. Uh, and. Uh, of course wars were one of the uh, things which uh, held people together or pushed people together uh, we're all in the same boat feeling was was, was very important uh, uh, we, we've not uh, had that for a long time um, and yes I, I um, feel nostalgic for a, a Britishness which I think is fading uh, and um,
0: I have to try and be stoical about it. <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to draw things to a close now as we're coming up to eight. Um, but there is one. I would just like to ask you, um, of all the... If you, were, if you were going to take a sabbatical year um, uh, and spend it in another country, perhaps one of your 15 vanished, uh, vanished states, um, and, of course, if you could be assured of your, your health and your physical safety mm-hmm. and of a safe passage back in time and a time machine which which would you choose to spend a year in? Oh dear that's um,
1: many to choose from my um, uh, intention six years ago when I started putting this together was to visit all the vanished kingdoms uh, uh, we managed to my wife and I went to about half of them and then time began to uh, run out so um, perhaps it would be um one of the uh, um, uh, the vanished kingdoms that I, you know, didn't um, didn't visit. Um, um, oh dear, what am I going to? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'm well. I'm v- very attached to um, uh, Grenoble. Mm-hmm. I went there as a, a mm-hmm. student, uh, and. Um, Savoy, the history. Savoy. Savoy yeah. is one of the um, one of the chapters. I think a year in um, mm-hmm. on the uh, what is now the Franco-Italian frontier, but used to be between the two parts of Piedmont-Savoy. Mm-hmm. You, you could style. have You uh, could have been
0: in on the foundation of the Italian Republic um, would you well, know,
1: would you go on this. I might have been on the. Would uh, you now regret that? I might be on the the foundation of the new North Italian
0: Republic, (laughs) which... uh, (laughs) Well, uh, we've had uh, a marvellous hour and a half. I'm sorry uh, I wasn't able to call uh, in the time, but uh, we've really enjoyed ourselves hugely. Um, You've answered the questions really interestingly, questions, uh, you've shared some marvellous thoughts with us, and uh, only whets the appetite more for the book. Just to remind you, the book is on sale outside. It should be signed up here. After about 15 minutes we'll have to take Norman away to get some food into him. Uh, Norman, thank you very, very much indeed.